Traditionally, Debbie and I put our Christmas tree up sometime in the first week or two weeks of December. As long as it's December, it's allowed. But just over two weeks ago, Debbie persuaded me that actually November 21st was okay this year because this has been such an unusual year and so up it went. Apparently, we were not alone, as in lockdown, lots of people put the trees up earlier than normal as they look forward to Christmas bringing some relief to the really difficult season that we are in. And in preparing for this talk, I discovered that Advent, which is presumably when you're allowed to start preparing for Christmas, Advent actually began on November 29th this year. Intrigued that that wasn't a December date, I did some quick research and discovered over the last 20 years, I was surprised to find that 11, that's more than half, Advent begins in November. So it appears that it is officially okay to put up a Christmas tree in November. Now, peace with all of you who thoroughly disagree with that. Let me tell you about some unique decorations which we put on our tree every year. Many years ago, I was in Bethlehem and I visited a church just off Manger Square. And shortly before I'd been there, in 2002, there'd been a historic standoff between Palestinian fighters and Israeli forces. And uh, it centered on the Church of the Nativity, just in Manger Square there, uh, situated on the spot reckoned to be where Jesus was born. Israeli tanks rolled into Bethlehem, huge gunfights erupted, there was a very large explosion, and the stained glass windows of the little church I was visiting were shattered. And the priest told us that he and others, including children, went out, they picked up all the broken pieces of shattered glass, and rather than just putting them in the bin, they got creative. With lead strips and soldering irons, they created little lantern decorations, and I bought just two. For me, these rustic little decorations remind me of that devastating event which happened right there where Jesus was born. And yet, in the midst of extraordinary conflict and suffering, these little lanterns are a symbol of hope. I wonder what you are hoping for this Christmas. Many of you may have been waiting nervously, like I was, for the government announcements on the rules for gathering over Christmas, hoping that they would allow you to see the loved ones that you may have been separated from for so much of this year. Debbie and I were also waiting during the lockdown, which ended just on Wednesday, for clarity on restrictions being relaxed to allow churches to host events like the drive-in carol services you just heard about. Whatever you are hoping for this Christmas, this season of Advent is all about hope. It's a time when we look forward. We look forward to the coming of Jesus, and we do so on, on two levels. It serves as a reminder of the original waiting uh, that was done by the people of Israel, awaiting the Messiah, the long-awaited one who would save the people of Israel and establish God's rule and his reign. And of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus, in her ninth month of pregnancy, she was waiting for the birth of her child. But Advent is also about the waiting of Christians today for the second coming of Christ. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which is the translation of the Greek word parousia. Parousia 
is the word that Bible scholars use to describe the second coming of Christ. So in Advent, we look forward with hope to, first of all, celebrating God becoming incarnate, becoming a human being in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. The Christmas story is all about hope. Hope for a broken world in need of a savior. Hope for those who Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, described as separate from Christ, without hope and without God in the world. And Advent also speaks of hope as we look forward to the second coming of Christ, the day when he will return. And those who believe in him will join with all his followers who have died and step into the presence of God for eternity. Some of us may be anticipating Christmas with some trepidation. Hope might actually feel quite far away. Often at Christmas, family gather together, and some of you may have even had to make the difficult decision this year not to see family over Christmas because you or they are especially vulnerable. Or because of restrictions, you can only see some of your family, some of the members you would love to be able to celebrate with. Christmas is normally a time when close friends see each other and restrictions won't allow us to do that in the way that we once did. And in many families, there will be an awareness that someone is missing. Perhaps a loved one who was once part of happy Christmas memories will not be there this year. Perhaps they've passed away, perhaps even during this year. This has been a hard year for so many of us, but whatever 2020 has felt like, Christmas is still about hope. And today I'm just going to look with you at a key character in the Christmas story who held on to hope throughout her life, despite her circumstances. Her name is Mary. It's easy to see how Mary could be full of hope when we first meet her in the Christmas story, like any expectant mother, I'm sure she would have been full of hopes and dreams for her child. But Mary knew that her child was special. Many extraordinary promises were made about who her son was going to be. Today, I want to fast forward 33 years from Jesus' birth to think about Mary at the other end of the story of Jesus' time here on earth to the crucifixion. Why? Because Christmas and the cross are inextricably linked. Christmas and Easter intertwined. Jesus was born to die and to be raised again. And in his resurrection, we find the certainty of our resurrection. The most precious gift at Christmas is the hope of eternal life. Mary, who lost her son when he was just 33, would have missed Jesus, especially on his birthday. Every one of the 15 or so birthdays from his ascension to the end of her life. A missing, though, that was filled with hope, looking forward to seeing him again. A hope that she carried with her throughout her life. Let's just for a moment imagine Mary at the cross. 
many artistic impressions portray crosses as being really tall, but my reading indicates that apparently Roman crosses were generally not much higher than the height of a man. The crucified person's feet would probably have only been a couple of feet off the ground. So Debbie, if you could just step forward here and just join me here. This is probably, could have been the proximity of Mary to her son Jesus as he hung on the cross. We know they were conversationally close enough for him to talk to her about John uh, taking her into his home. Thank you. She must have been distraught. The pain, the grief, the sorrow from 9 a.m. through to 3 p.m. I wonder what went through Mary's mind during those six hours. I suggest she was thinking about the events of Christmas or as the festival of Christmas was yet to be created, the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. Only Christmas gave sense and meaning to this terrible tragedy. She may have been remembering the events which happened 33 years before. The church of the Annunciation in Nazareth is believed to be the house that Mary lived in as a teenager. I've stood in it and it's, it was hard to compute that this is where tradition has it that Mary a girl of about 14 years old who was engaged to be married to a man called Joseph was visited by an angel and told she would be the mother of Jesus. It was preserved, they believe, and converted, of course, into a chapel now. She was a virgin. She became pregnant with God's own son. She told her fiancé, who not surprisingly didn't understand and assumed she'd been with another man. He was going to discreetly divorce her. But an angel came to him in a dream and said this in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. That was a form of Joshua, which was a name which means the Lord saves. Give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And Mary must have pondered, how will he do that? How will he save people from their sins? She would have remembered the shepherds visiting the day that Jesus was born when he was laid in an animal trough in a manger, which the square, of course, in Bethlehem is named after. The shepherds told her that the angel who announced his birth had said this in Luke 2, 11, Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Verse 19 says, after she heard these things, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. She would have remembered those incredible words and thought about them often, pondering what they might mean. Her son was to be the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. As Mary stood at the cross, perhaps as she was thinking, as she had so many times, how could this happen? Perhaps she thought, could this be what they meant when they said he would save people from their sins? She would have remembered Jesus 
when he was just a few weeks old, she and Joseph had taken him to the temple in Jerusalem to be dedicated to the Lord. And there a man called Simeon takes Jesus in his arms. And we're told in Luke chapter 2 and verse 34. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be, will be spoken against. And then he looked into Mary's eyes, this young teenage girl, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. How many times over the last 33 years had she wondered about what Simeon had meant? How would Jesus be opposed and spoken against? And how would my soul be pierced as a result of my child? As Jesus hung there next to her, his hands and his feet pierced, her soul was pierced. And she understood what Simeon had said all those years before. Mary would have recalled the time Sometime after Jesus was born, while they were still living in Bethlehem, the, the visit of the Magi, wise men from the east who studied the stars. And we find this in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh, that's a very strange gift to give to a child. Myrrh was traditionally mixed. It was very expensive. It was mixed with wine and offered to those about to be crucified to take the edge off their pain. Myrrh was one of the perfumed ingredients of the anointing oil, which was used to consecrate the, the holy things in the temple. And most poignantly, it was one of the spices used for embalming the dead. She must have wondered over three decades, why had they given him myrrh? Of course, we don't know for sure what Mary was thinking at the cross. But I think it's fair to suggest that she maybe was thinking about all these things. Because after the, his resurrection, all those things which she had treasured in her heart and pondered all those years were shared by her with the men who then wrote the Gospels. And we can assume she continued to treasure them throughout her life. The Gospels tell us that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he met with over 500 of his followers. He talked about the kingdom of God. And in the book of Acts, Luke adds that Jesus tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit before he was taken up to heaven. And so they go to Jerusalem and we find this in Acts chapter 1. They go to Jerusalem, and when they arrive, verse 13, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. It lists the apostles, and they say, it says they're 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Interesting. Mary is named there in Acts chapter 1 as being among Jesus' followers, joining constantly in prayer as they waited for the promised Holy Spirit. And by implication, she was almost certainly there when the believers were still meeting together in the next chapter on the day of Pentecost, chapter 2. 
we can assume, I think it's fair to say, that Mary was among those filled with the Holy Spirit who left that room to tell the world about her son's resurrection. Mary is believed to have died in Ephesus, almost certainly in the home of John the Apostle, uh, who she lived with from that point on, when she was about 64 years old. And we can assume that Mary spent the last 15 years of her life telling others about the hope that she and the rest of Jesus' disciples had come to know. The hope of the resurrection of the dead. That all who follow Jesus are guaranteed to be raised with him to an incredible eternal future in the presence of God. What motivated her? After having such promises made of Jesus and then seeing her son die on a cross, what sustained her? Because she'd witnessed her son having risen from the dead. She had hope in the resurrection of the dead. She died knowing that she would see her son again. All those things that she treasured in her heart, the things she was told about who her child would be, even before he was born, she knew those things were true. She would have known that Jesus had said this in John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My father's house has plenty of room. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. I will come back. The return of Christ. John's gospel is structured as a series of seven signs illustrating particular aspects of Jesus's divine authority, including his power over the last and most irresistible enemy of humanity, death. And just three chapters earlier, we read about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus when Jesus raised Lazarus to life. And Mary would have known intimately about this, remembering that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And to demonstrate the truth of that claim, he told Lazarus to come out of his tomb, which he then miraculously did. It was a sign, not that people who die prematurely will be brought back to life, but that Jesus has power over all things, including over death. And we can be certain that those who die knowing Jesus will be raised to eternal life. Even in the midst of this pandemic, at a time when some of us might feel somewhat hopeless, today we can learn from Mary's example and we can have hope. Because Christmas and the cross go hand in hand. They are inseparable. Christmas celebrates the birth of a Savior who was given the name Jesus because he would save people from their sins. And the way he did that was to pay the ultimate price in his death on the cross. You see, hope isn't found in our circumstances. Hope is found in a person. Jesus, who came first as a baby 2,000 years ago. 
But it didn't end there. The hope of Christmas was not only that Jesus came into the world back then, but that he is coming again. And it could be soon. It could be quite a way off. But it will happen. And on that great day, all our hopes will be realized as we join with those who have died, knowing him in meeting Jesus face to face. No matter what our circumstances, we can treasure these things in our heart, as Mary did. I'm sure that for many of us, this year has been hard. It's hard to hold on to hope, but we don't have to keep this hope alive. Hope isn't something we have to muster up. Hope is embodied in a person whose name is Jesus, and he is alive. If he is your hope, he can lift you above how difficult or draining this year might have been for you or what restrictions or losses you're facing this Christmas time. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome and talking about Jesus, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah who prophesied hundreds of years before about the first Christmas. And this is what it says, chapter 15, verse 12. The root of Jesse will spring up. The one, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. That's what Isaiah wrote. In him, the Gentiles will hope. In him, the Jews, the Gentiles, basically the hope is there for everyone. And I just want to read this very next sentence and say to every one of you today, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope.